Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we have our usual format again for you today after we took a little bit of a break last week for the Google event. So we'll start with a news roundup in which we will talk about the uh, Galaxy Note 7 recall um, and the ongoing saga of all of that as it relates to Samsung. Our second news roundup topic will be Amazon's announcements this week around its new music services. And then our third news roundup topic will be uh, iOS 10 adoption rates and kind of what we're learning about those both from uh, third-party sources like Mixpanel and also from Apple's own numbers here. Uh, we'll then move on to our question of the week. And this week, our question uh, is about conflict minerals and other minerals used in consumer electronics. And specifically, the question is, what is the human impact of mineral sourcing in consumer electronics? And so you may have heard about the concept of conflict minerals previously. More recently, the Washington Post had an article about uh, cobalt specifically, and another about graphite. And so we're just going to dive into that a little bit. And Aaron's going to bring his perspective as an ethics professor into this as well. Um, so that'll be our middle segment. And then our third segment will be uh, a discussion about uh, what's happening with online publishing and, and a concept that I will be writing about this week called the de-democratization of online publishing, where I feel like the way that some of the new platforms that are emerging are taking power back out of the hands of individual small publishers and, and putting more power back into the hands of major publishers and in some ways this is kind of a, a backward step and even going back in time to the sort of pre-web days so we'll have a little conversation about that towards the end in our third segment and then we'll wrap up as usual uh, with a weekly pick so something that I'll be recommending to our listeners so let's kick off with our news roundup and, and talking first of all about the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 which finally is being withdrawn entirely and production ceasing um, after what's been quite a long saga. Uh, Aaron, what was your take on the latest stage in, in this sort of ongoing story? I, I was really surprised that they didn't fix it with the replacement products. I genuinely thought they would have had that nailed down. And, 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 it, and even more distressingly, from the New York Times article that came out on this, it sounds like they don't even know for sure why this is happening still that they've had people testing internally, but they can't seem to replicate the problem, which doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I think the inherent challenge here is that this seems to have, so far at least, affected about 1 in 25,000 devices. And so by definition, if you want to test it and try to recreate this scenario under which this happens, you'd, you'd have to test probably at least 25,000 and statistically probably double or triple that to really be able to see you know, more than one uh, case of this happening. And so that's the challenge. It's enormously difficult to recreate because it's actually quite a rare problem. It's certainly common enough to warrant a recall, but um, the problem here is it's not common enough that it's going to show up in even quite a lot of testing by quite a lot of people. Um, but yeah, the fact that there's no solution is, is one of the biggest things that Samsung now has to work on, I think, in the next few months. Uh, it's going to presumably launch the Galaxy S8 in the springtime, as it usually does, uh, with the S devices. By that stage, it needs to have communicated very clearly, this is what the problem was, we're absolutely certain of it, and this is how this new device is designed differently so as to avoid that problem. Um, and, and unless it can do that, people are going to be very wary of buying that next device as well. So. Um, you know, the immediate impact, the Note 7, that's all going to go away in the next few weeks as people finally return those devices and buy something else. But the longer-term impact depends to a great deal, I think, on Samsung's ability to articulate its explanation of what went wrong and how it's going to avoid the same problem cropping up in future phones. It's going to be a rough brand image to shake off, though, even once they figure that out. Because, they're, I mean... You know, there are going to be jokes about shipping it back in fireproof boxes, which is really what's happening right. in the recall process. 
Uh, I mean, you think about AntennaGate and BendGate and those much less consequential problems that Apple's had with the iPhone. This one's going to hang over Samsung for a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more going forward too, especially as Samsung's final results come out. They, they adjusted their preliminary results this week um, downwards to account for the latest uh, in the Note 7 saga, but we'll see all the details in a few weeks when they, they report their full results in detail. Um, yeah. Our second news roundup topic was Amazon, which announced uh, a couple of new music services this week. They, they have a uh, full streaming service uh, along the lines of Spotify and Apple Music and so on, in which it's a very large number of, of tracks. They've had a much more limited streaming service until now as part of Prime. Uh, this would be $10, just like everybody else's service, except that if you're already a Prime subscriber, it's only $8. And it appears Amazon's basically going to eat that $2 difference uh, and pay artists at the same rate as if it was a $10 service. But they're also going to offer a stripped-down version, which is only for the Echo device. And they managed to convince labels to allow them to offer this. And something we talked about briefly on a previous episode, where they seem to have managed to convince the labels to allow them to offer this on the basis that it's basically a funnel for... Uh, the full-price streaming services, a service that works on all devices. And so in some ways, it's a bit like Spotify's free tier um, and that it offers sort of an on-ramp or a funnel for the paid service. And this is something interesting that Apple doesn't have. Apple does have iTunes. They have iTunes Radio. They have a few other free services, but they don't have anything that's sort of a full-fledged music streaming service with limitations, which this is and which Spotify has. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, over the next few months as we see sort of user number estimates pop up, how that's going for Amazon. But, um, you know, that's only one way of looking at it, right? So as a full-fledged streaming service competing in that space. But, of course, this isn't the only thing Amazon does. And I think you had some thoughts about kind of another way of looking at this. Well, two thoughts, really. The first is we don't know how much Amazon is subsidizing the cost of it to, to funnel it through their Echo devices. I, I mean, we don't know how much of a discount, if any, the labels have agreed to for this. And Amazon has been known to subsidize stuff to push hardware platforms before. I mean, they definitely did that with the Kindle. And so when the Kindle was first, you know, setting out and it, they were selling it at a loss and because they wanted to push the ebook platform uh, and so, so that's one thought is we don't know how much Amazon is actually paying out. I suspect that they're subsidizing it to some degree. Um, the other thing is it sort of feels like, uh, uh, kind of the entry price now, if you want to have a platform with a digital assistant and everything that that implies is you have to have a full fledged streaming service, um, as part of it. Um, and, and that creates, you know, last week when we were talking about whether or not people can be agnostic about their digital assistant that they use in any given moment. Because when we were talking about Google Home and the Nexus, or, sorry, and, the, and not the new Nexus phones, the new Pixel phones, um, you know, we we're talking about whether or not people would care very much about which digital assistant they're using at, at which moment. Uh, they'll definitely care if they have to subscribe to two or three different streaming services to get the music they want in the place where they want it. And so I think this is an interesting uh, lockup or tie-in, you know, to get people more invested in the in the platform that they're going to be using uh, to listen to music and do everything else that they do. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Both Amazon and Google offer Spotify integration. Um, Google Home will have Spotify integration, and, and you could even set it as your default music service. But um, certainly there's going to be an attempt to try to get you to use their own streaming service. And certainly in Amazon's case, it's been there already with their very limited streaming service, but often results in frustration because they only play samples of songs that aren't part of that service today. So it's an easy way to kind of reduce friction. And But all of this really is... I think best seen as another way of tying people more tightly into Prime, which is really the, the main objective here, which is to get people to subscribe to Prime, to stay subscribed to Prime, because Amazon sees this enormous uplift in how much people spend. But to your point, um, music's being used as a tool, basically, to achieve other things by many of these companies. Uh, Spotify is one of the few companies out there that's actually a standalone music streaming service, and we've seen some of their struggles financially as a result of that. For almost everybody else in the market now, it's about adding value to something else. Uh, and for all that music's enormously important to us, it's worth remembering this is a global industry that's less than $20 billion in revenue a year. So uh, it's quite tiny in the scope of what some of these companies do and their own revenues and so on. So interesting to see music sort of co-opted or absorbed in this way into these bigger platforms and, and systems that these companies are building. And that makes a kind of bleak outlook for Spotify, if you think about it, because they're trying to make a business out of something that that other companies are increasingly commoditizing. Yeah, there's an interesting analogy there to a company like Dropbox um, or other sort of online storage companies, which is that storage is basically becoming a, a giveaway with lots of these platforms as well. And yet companies like Dropbox are still out there trying to make a business out of that in its own right. And there's a range of features that you can look at that have kind of fallen into that category. Messaging is another one. You know, you simply can't charge for some of these things anymore because they've just become table stakes as part of broader platforms. And so to the extent you're a standalone company in one of these spaces, life gets harder and harder over time. So I'm going to make a crazy prediction right now. Um, I think Spotify is going to get acquired um, by, by the end, by, by the time this, you know, this story, I guess, plays out all the way. And I think it wouldn't surprise me if it was Amazon or Google that did the acquisition. Mm -hmm. Okay, that'll be worth taking note of and uh, coming back to in a future episode. Um, our third news roundup topic is iOS 10 adoption rates. And Mixpanel is one of the more prominent third-party companies that uh, provides data on this. It isn't what it does. It, it provides analytics for developers, but as part of that, collects a lot of data about which devices people are using. And so they provide... Uh, these quite nice interactive dashboards around iOS adoption, among other things. Uh, Apple just finally this week uh, issued updated statistics on its own basis uh, for iOS 10 adoption in its base. And um, there was a bit of a delta between the two numbers. And, and there's something I've looked at before, um, just over a year ago, September 2015, I did a, an article that looked in depth at the differences between the two and talked about the methodologies and so on. So we'll link to that. Uh, rather than going to the details here. But they are measuring different things. So Mixpanel measures usage of certain apps that have decided to use Mixpanel for analytics. Apple basically is measuring visitors to the App Store. And so they're, they're necessarily measuring different things. One's very focused on third-party application usage. The other one is very focused on uh, Apple App Store usage. And, and those necessarily will capture different things. There may also be some geographic differences based on uh, where those things respectively are used. Um, but the one thing that's consistent between the two is that uh, adoption has been very strong. And the overall trend you'd expect to see over time is that adoption gets slower because newer users may be less aware that there are updates available, maybe more worried about installing an update they don't really understand and so on. So you'd expect adoption to be slower for each new version of iOS. Uh, but iOS 10, 9 last year was actually quite strong, and so it was a bit of an outlier in that sense. Uh, iOS 10 started slower but now seems to be speeding up and sort of getting up to a similar rate. So it's been interesting to see 
uh, kind of how that's happening and, and the adoptions continues to be very strong even despite the fact that you're seeing a maturing base and possibly less savvy users coming in at the bottom end. Anecdotally, it really feels like the changes to the iMessage app in iOS 10 are driving most of the adoptions. I mean, when I when I see what's happening with friends and family around me that have iPhones, there's definitely a, you know a sort of buzz of hey, have you updated yet? I want to do the cool new you know fireworks screen effect next time I send you a right. message. And uh, I mean, even my mother-in-law felt urgency to upgrade to iOS 10 and. And urgency to upgrade isn't something that my mother-in-law normally feels. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and so I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is driving the majority of it. It's definitely the feature that Apple's making the biggest deal out of um, to get people to upgrade to iOS 10. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of this stuff that Apple's baked into to iMessages has been available on all sorts of other chat platforms, but I think it just really speaks to the dominance of iMessage within the Apple ecosystem. People just really like it and prefer using it. In fact, the families, those those in my family that are using iPhones are really excited that uh, that my father-in-law is getting an iPhone now too. Right. And because uh, yeah. he's been on an Android phone before and and uh, everybody's happier with blue bubbles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's one of the most uh, subtle but powerful things I think that's part of iOS and that, that's always driven adoption and, and made it stickier than it might otherwise have been. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. Uh, and as I mentioned up at the top, we're talking about uh, conflict minerals and other minerals that are used in sourcing for consumer electronics products. And the specific question this week is what is the human impact of mineral sourcing and consumer electronics. And as I mentioned earlier, Aaron's going to draw on his perspective as a, as a professor of business ethics here and talking about some of this. But let's, let's kind of break it down into several different categories because there are really multiple issues around mineral sourcing. And, and so we'll start out with what's been one of the most high profile uh, aspects of this for some time, which is conflict minerals. So um, why don't you help us understand what conflict minerals are and, and how that relates to all this? Sure. So the, the concept generally of conflict minerals is that in areas of, of local uh, conflict, um, you know, where there's, where there's uh, actual fighting and killing take place between, taking place between opposing factions, uh, groups will often use the natural resources that they have control over to fund their conflicts. And they use it to, you know, buy ammunition or, or weapons or, or anything else that will help them to gain ground in the conflict. When we talk about conflict minerals today, we are mostly talking about a very specific region of the world, which is the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, or I'll just call it Congo for short. And uh, and specifically, when we're talking about conflict minerals in that part of the world, we're talking about what people refer to as 3TG, meaning that there are three minerals that start with the letter T and then one that starts with G. Um, those minerals specifically are tantalum, uh, which comes from columbite tantalite, or coltan for short. Uh, this mineral is used in what are called tantalite capacitors, which are a really common component in consumer electronics. Um, the second T stands for tin, which comes from cassiterite. Um, tin is used, for example, in circuit board solder, so it's a commonly used mineral. Uh, the third T is tungsten, which comes from wolframite. Uh, tungsten is usually used in heavy metal applications. It's a very heavy, hard-wearing material, so it's often used, for example, in machining tools. Uh, that's why you have carbide or tungsten carbide blades, for example, in, in machining or woodworking. 
but it's also used in specialized parts, like for example, in Apple's Taptic Engine or other cell phones or devices that have vibrating alert systems in them. They often use tungsten because of the nature of the metal. The G actually just stands for gold, um, which is used in a lot of consumer electronics applications, including semiconductors. So those are the four minerals, and those are all mined in the Congo. And um, and have historically, or, or I should say more recently, been mined in conflict areas. And so these mines will actually be controlled by, by, uh, by fighting factions, and then they use the resources from, they sell these resources that they mine to, to fund their operations. Um, an interesting thing happened <clears throat> in the United States when Dodd-Frank was passed. Um, there's a, a section 1502 that was, and Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010, there's a section 1502 that related to the way publicly traded companies report on their supply chain. And as a result of this, um, the SEC created a rule called 13P, uh, P as in Peter, dash one. And this rule essentially requires that all publicly traded companies have to report on the existence of conflict minerals in their supply chains. And so if you're a publicly traded company that produces things and the things you produce have these conflict minerals, you have to hire an external auditor who will then do an audit of your supply chain and identify where conflict minerals may be coming from in your supply chain. And then that report is made public. To be clear, there are no consequences for, there, there are no legal consequences in the United States for having a product that contains conflict minerals. But, uh, but you do have to report on, on what you know about the conflict minerals that exist in your supply chain. And incidentally, this is an incredibly complex process to, to sort of figure out where the minerals in your supply chain are coming from. To illustrate that, I actually went and pulled the most recent 13P report that Apple put together. And so they do this on an annual basis. And so they've done one for 2015. And, and sometime early next year, we'll have a report for 2016. But uh, for them, in order for Apple to do this report, they essentially had to audit two, over 240 miners and smelters that they think are in their supply chain. And it sounds crazy that Apple wouldn't know for sure who, who's in their supply chain. But the problem is, is that you know, this supply chain has so many intermediaries where the mining company, and it may not even be a company, it might be just some dude who's mining this on his own, sells the minerals and then they get passed through suppliers who then sell this, these minerals to manufacturers who then put them into components that then maybe go on to higher scale, like further up the to supply chain manufacturers. And eventually it'll get, you know, like, like stuck in a box and shipped to a consumer. Um, and so Apple, is a, Apple actually made a big deal in its 2015 report and very, to very proudly say that they've actually been able to involve in their reporting and auditing all 242 smelters of conflict of minerals that they hadn't been able to accomplish before. Uh, for Apple, that was a, that was a multi-year process to get them to that point. Um, so that's, I, I bring that up, and, and Apple's not the only one that does this. You know, Intel has to do this, HP has to do this. In fact, Intel, HP, and Apple are the three companies that have really led the charge in setting an industry t standard in this regard to be especially transparent and especially proactive in eliminating conflict minerals. But, uh, um, but anyway, there are a lot of companies, obviously, that are producing consumer electronics that might have the three TG minerals in their supply chain. 
Um, the nice thing is that when it comes to conflict minerals, these efforts seem to be working. Um, companies feeling the the pressure that comes from transparency are, are are spending extra money and taking extra efforts to make sure that the three TG minerals are that they use in their supply chain are coming from conflict-free zones. Um, and and so it is working. According to one report, it's about 75% of Congolese miners are now working in mines with no armed group involvement, meaning they're, they're working in an area that's not controlled by armed groups. And that figure is actually roughly flipped from what it used to be even just five or more years ago. Um, another really cool thing that's, that's resulted from this is the, the, the minerals that are not certified as conflict-free, that can't be guaranteed to be conflict-free, are actually becoming more expensive. And so if you're buying um, tungsten, for example, or I guess I should say wolframite, if you're buying this um, wolframite and you can't guarantee that it's conflict-free, um, that actually is making those minerals more expensive than they used to be, which... Uh, or, uh, sorry, I've got that flipped. I've got that flipped. They're actually becoming, the prices for those are plummeting because if you can't guarantee they're conflict-free, it adds scrutiny to your supply chain, which you don't want. So so manufacturers are not willing to pay less for conflict-free materials than they are for, or sorry, for conflict materials than they are for conflict-free ones. And so what that's doing is reducing the price that, that these armed groups are getting for the min minerals that they're selling, which is therefore funding their efforts even less. So there's good progress in this space. There's still, you know, th they, there's still a long way to go, but um, it, but uh, but it it seems to be having the desired effect. Great. Okay. So that's conflict minerals specifically. Um, but there was this piece recently in the Washington Post about cobalt specifically, and talking about that. And that that wasn't one of your three TG minerals, but this is obviously one that's used quite a bit still in consumer electronics, and uh, they did a story on that as it relates, I think, specifically to batteries. So um, can you talk us through kind of what the issues are in terms of kind of the human impact for, for cobalt specifically? Yeah, in fact, it was that article that, that spurred me to choose this for our topic for the question of the week this week. Um, it was a really fantastic article, and, and there was also a companion article about graphite which is also used in lithium-ion batteries. And uh, that one got a lot less attention, but it's still a really important article. Um, both of these articles are really well produced also. They come with a bunch of video images. Uh, visually, they're really well done on the Washington Post website. So I strongly recommend them. And we'll make sure we put links up in the, in the notes for this episode of the podcast. But uh, specifically about cobalt, so cobalt, like we said, is used in lithium-ion batteries. It's actually used to, to make up the anode, which is the negative connection in a battery. And um, it, ironically enough, cobalt also comes from Congo. Um, in fact, 60% of the world's supply of cobalt comes from Congo. This is not, however, a, a mineral that's been associated with conflict, um, primarily because of where it's geographically mined in the Congo versus uh, the conflict mi minerals. Cobalt tends to be in, in areas that are high in copper, and so the two tend to go hand in hand. Um, but uh, um, like I said, 60% of the global supply comes from the Congo, but, but actually uh, almost all of it is shipped to China. Uh, and there are two major suppliers who buy up all the supply in Congo and then ship it to China for manufacturing. Uh, about 
and this is where the troubling part comes in, and this is what the article is about, about 30% of what of the cobalt produced in Congo comes from what the article referred to as artisanal miners, which is really kind of a sadly ironic name because we use artisanal today to imply like fancy, right? right. And, and it's even used ironically, you know. There's that really funny video about some guy who produces artisanal firewood, <laughs> and uh, which is which is a great one. Anyway, um, but what it really means when they call them artisanal miners is that these are independent contractors, so to speak. I mean, they, they they're independent business people. They 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 go out and they find a place to mine. They do it entirely by themselves. They might have you know a partner that they work with or two or three, but that's about it. And they're paid purely on what they produce. So they're not paid a wage. Um, instead, they're simply paid on the amount of cobalt that they can find and sell at the market. The, the way that process works is they they go into these mines and you really need to, to, to read the article and watch the videos on this. They go into these, these holes in the ground that are much wider than a human being, but yet go really deep into the earth um, and, and come with immense risk, as you can imagine. Um, they mine as much of this stuff out as they can a day. Some of them can actually get you know, a ton or more of cobalt out of the ground in a day. And then what they do is they, they take it to a... Um, they, they take it to a, a washing station, which is really just kind of a pool set up with sandbags next to a river. Um, women and children are usually the ones doing the mineral washing. And then they, once they've, they've washed these chunks of cobalt, um, they're sort of evaluated for their cobalt content, um, these chunks that they've mined, um, and then sold to Chinese, uh, uh, to these Chinese companies. And there are a lot of middlemen in the process before it finally gets shipped to China. But uh, but that's sort of the process by which it happens. And, and as you can imagine, this is really, really dangerous. Um, uh, not just because in mining, you know, obviously, if you're not mining in a careful, deliberate way, there's always a risk of cave-ins. And those happen, and there's stories of miners who have been injured or killed as a result of that. But there's also a high risk of lung disease. Um, that Some of these miners will actually sleep in the mines uh, because of the pressure they feel to produce. Uh, and provide income for their families. Um, being down underground includes the risk of noxious gases like methane. Um, and so lung disease is a common problem as well. And, uh, and, and all this happens with zero support from mining companies because these men don't work for a mining company, they work for themselves. Uh, there are cobalt mining companies, however. Um, the problem is that, that, that cobalt mined by companies using proper safety procedures tends to be a little bit more expensive. So our artisanal miners are able to sell their stuff because they can sell it for cheaper than the mining companies can, and that's why 30% of cobalt in Congo still comes from artisanal miners. To make matters worse, the washing process that these artisanal miners use pollutes local water sources, um, and uh, and there's concerns that the that the, this pollution and the and the cobalt mining is actually leading to birth defects. So so this is. This is clearly having a substantial human impact and the sort of thing that people don't think about when they think about recharging their iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned there was something about graphite too. So they had another article that talked about graphite as well. Yeah, and graphite is is a, 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 a similar problem but in a different part of the world. Um, it, 75% of the graphite uh, that's used comes from China. So graphite, i got to rewind. Graphite is used primarily in batteries but as the cathode. So... So the, the positive connector on a, on a lithium-ion battery. 
is made of graphite. Um, there are two kinds of graphite available on the market. There's natural graphite, which is mined and processed, and there's synthetic graphite. Synthetic graphite is produced by superheating byproducts from oil, oil refining. Um, synthetic graphite is more expensive, and in fact, it can cost twice as much as natural graphite. Um, graphite that's used for batteries has to be refined and actually reshaped. It's shaped, reshaped from flakes into these tiny pellets. Um, and the refining, there's, there are two ways to refine natural graphite. One is through a heat process, um, but that actually makes it about 20% more expensive. There's a chemical process for refining graphite, but, uh, um, but it leads to two really big problems. Um, and these problems are primarily in China. So China has about 75% of, uh, produces about 75% of the world's supply of, 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 of natural graphite. Um, and, in the, and they process it in this more polluting chemical way. It's polluting in two ways. Um, the first is air pollution. And essentially what's happening with the air pollution is that particulate graphite gets into the air and spreads everywhere. And the Washington Post article, again, if you haven't read it, you got to check it out, has video of graphite overlaying crops, um, getting all over people's homes. Like there are farmers who walk through their cornfields and come out with their faces blackened by graphite. And it's, it's really a rampant problem there. And unfortunately, the people there feel really powerless. Part of the reason they feel powerless is because essentially all the, almost all of graphite production in China is funneled through one company called BTR. And so BTR actually supplies about 75% of global demand for uh, natural graphite. And, and so this graphite production is different in the sense that, you know, you don't have people climbing into, into these really these makeshift mines and, and, and risking their lives, but it is causing a pretty dramatic environmental problem for concentrated parts of China. So you've talked about both cobalt and graphite, and you mentioned that they were used as the uh, two of the electrode materials for lithium-ion batteries, and, and we obviously talked about the Samsung battery situation earlier. But um, you know, not only smartphones, which have been uh, you know growing enormously over the last few years, but th new things like uh, electric vehicles, so Teslas uh, and so on, use lithium-ion batteries. Uh, this is a, a category that's uh, exploding—no pun intended—in uh, more ways than one. <laughs> Um, and you know, Tesla building an enormous factory here in the U.S. to, to manufacture these batteries. If the uh, materials, these minerals that are kind of components of all of this, are so problematic, is this a good thing or a bad thing ultimately? And is there anything that can be done to kind of mitigate this growth in the use of these minerals? Yeah. So Tesla was an interesting question as I was doing research on this because it's supposed to. Um, to, to increase the amount of battery production globally by an order of magnitude. And it's not just because of Tesla. There are other gigafactories that are being planned in other parts of the world, but Tesla's getting the attention for the one that they're building in Nevada. The question is what exactly or how is Tesla going to deal with the ethical issues of these two minerals being used in battery production? So I decided to do some research on that specifically and, and found some interesting things. Um, Tesla has actually announced that it plans to source all of its cobalt and graphite in North America exclusively, um, and primarily in the United States and Canada. Um, and, and the amount of, uh, but the problem is there are currently not the, 
there currently isn't the mining infrastructure in place for Tesla to succeed at this. Now, that doesn't mean to say that, that it's impossible, um, but there there is stuff that still has to be done before Tesla can source all of its cobalt and graphite from North America. Regarding cobalt specifically, right now uh, Tesla actually gets, in a partnership with Panasonic, Tesla gets all of its cobalt from the Philippines where it's mined more responsibly. Um, in North America, there are really only two sources of cobalt on the horizon. One is in Idaho, one's in Canada. The Idaho source is, is um, being developed by a company called eCobalt Solutions. Um, they're still conducting a feasibility study. They say that their feasibility study is on track, however, um, but there's not a finalized timeline as to when they expect to actually spin up the, the mining and, and refining of cobalt. Um, the Canada source is from a company called Fortune Minerals, and it's at a site they have in the Northwest Territory. Um, the most recent update from them is that they've obtained government approval for mining cobalt. They're also mining copper and a couple other minerals up there in the same location. But that, that group is still seeking funding, so they don't even yet have all the financial backing they need to start uh, mining and, and refining cobalt. So it'll be interesting to see how Tesla does this and if they're the ones who make the investments and, and move these sources along. I'm sure they're kind of taking a wait-and-see approach or for all we know, they're pretty involved in this process. It would be crazy for them not to be. Um, they, they, from uh, one source I read, it looks like they have something like a two-year horizon um, before they have to start actually trying to get cobalt from North American sources um, before they'd have to look to Congo or, or places, other places outside of the Philippines to get their cobalt. Um, as far as graphite goes, um, so natural graphite, only about 2% of global natural graphite is mined in Canada and none of it is mined in the United States. So this is, again, a very meager uh, uh, mineral resource in, in North America. Um, the U.S. mainly just produces synthetic graphite, but uh, it, but Tesla has specifically said that they prefer synthetic graphite in their battery production. And so it appears to be the case that Tesla is going to be relying on synthetic graphite. Um, the, their concrete plans on that are less well known simply because they have more options. Um, you know, it was easy on the cobalt side to say, well, Tesla, here are your two choices. On the, on the graphite side, they have more options available, so it's less certain exactly how they're going to source graphite in North America. Um, the overall point of this discussion isn't to really zone in on Tesla. I, I'm using them to be an example of, of how, you know, sourcing this stuff responsibly uh, is not just a matter of picking a different provider. Um, there's a lot of investment. There's going to have to be a lot of work to get more ethically sourced graphite and cobalt in battery production. Um, and, uh, and so until that happens... Um, you know, we can't say with certainty that uh, that all of the stuff going into, uh, that all the minerals going into batteries are being sourced in ways that we're comfortable with. Okay. So you've talked a lot about companies and what they do, and obviously they're, they're the main sort of, uh, they're the ones with the most power here, I guess, to make changes in how they source these materials. As a consumer, though, you might want to make uh, either more ethical decisions here or at least better informed decisions about what you're buying and the implications that that has for the collection of these minerals and, and everything else that we've been talking about. So as a consumer, what could I do? What could our listeners do if they're interested in, in being more responsible about some of these choices? 
Yeah, so I mean, the first instinct I think most consumers would have is to is to pick a, a version of a product, pick a company that's producing these in, in ways that you feel more ethically confident in. Um, the sad reality is that's nearly impossible to do. I don't think there's any consumer electronics manufacturer that that can say with confidence that they don't run into the problems that we've already talked about up to this point. Um, you know, with conflict minerals, that's improving. With cobalt, uh, you know, even a company like Apple, Apple that makes a really big deal out of its um, out of its ethical uh, supply chain efforts, uh, even Apple couldn't say with certainty that they weren't using cobalt that was sourced from these artisanal miners, for example. Um, although Apple does apparently use synthetic graphite in their battery production. Um, the, the point, though, is that, that you can't really, as a consumer, you can't really pick a product and have total certainty that the, that the minerals in it are sourced ethically, at least in, you know, in, a, in a way that doesn't run into these problems that we've already talked about. And so, so the, the, the market effect that you'd hope would be there can't be there. Um, yet, but uh, things are changing in that regard. I think one thing that consumers can do is contact their lawmakers to expand the transparency standards for companies' supply chains so that they include things like cobalt and graphite that's ethically sourced, not just conflict minerals as required by law. Um, the nice thing about expanding transparency standards is that it's not the same thing as mandatory regulations about their supply chains. We're not saying you can't use cobalt from a particular source. We're, we would just be saying if you're going to use cobalt you need to tell us where it came from. Um, that does drive up prices somewhat um, because they have to pay for the audit process and everything. But uh, it, but in, but in return, we can make more informed purchasing decisions, and also it helps draw attention to problems and highlights progress that's being made in these areas. Um, another thing you can do is to support advocacy groups that are operating in this space. Um, for example, enoughproject.org stays uh, on top of the Congolese conflict minerals issue. And you can actually go to their website and read updates on the progress that's being made, both in locally in the government of the DR Congo, but also on a global scale in the way that suppliers are being more thoughtful about this. Um, there's another website called justiceinmining.com. And it's a good resource for information on ethical mining issues around the world, more broadly than just the minerals that we've talked about. Um, this is a, an organization that's run by a Catholic order called the Society for Jesus, or Jesuits, um, and they uh, provide a lot of information or engage in advocacy in this area as well. Um, I think one last thing that is maybe something that most people wouldn't think of is to prefer companies that have aggressive recycling programs. Uh, many of the materials we've talked about can actually be recaptured from discarded devices. Um, Apple, you know, when they did that, when Apple did the video of that recycling robot that they have that essentially pulls apart an iPhone so that they can recapture all these minerals from the iPhone, what happens is, is if they're recapturing minerals and there's less demand for, the, for, for these minerals that are causing these problems in terms of their human impact. Um, and so if you prefer companies that are doing this recycling, then you're preferring companies that are, that are, are doing this in a more ethical way than the ones who don't seem to care. Um, it also means you got to make sure to recycle your devices instead of throwing them away so that these minerals can be recaptured and the need to dig them out of the ground is, is diminished. So those are, those are the options. You know, I mean, we, in a perfect world, which we don't have, we would know where this stuff is coming from and we could make that change. But that's just not how this works. And, 
you know, the time may come that uh, we can know exactly where all these minerals and materials are coming from that are, you know, we stick in our pocket or in our backpack or sit on our desk. But uh, that's not going to happen unless we put pressure on, on, on companies to, to be more thoughtful and transparent about that. It does drive up prices for us, but, um, you know, I guess that's, that's the choice we have to make as to whether or not we think that's worth it. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron. We'll include links to a lot of the things that you've mentioned, including the, the two Washington Post pieces, uh, the Enough Project and Justice in Mining websites uh, on the website. So if you're interested in any of those and you didn't catch the details, um, they'll be on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. So thanks, Aaron, for, for sharing all that with us. Uh, in the last few minutes here, we're going to talk about our, our third topic, which is uh, this uh, idea of the de-democratization of publishing that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I've written a piece for Tech Pinions this week. It will go up on Thursday uh, around 1 a.m. Pacific time. So if you're listening to this on Thursday or afterwards, it should be on the Tech Pinions site uh, with something along the lines of that title that I just mentioned. Um, but let me just explain the concept here briefly, and we'll, we'll discuss it, and, and then we'll wrap up this episode. But um, the idea here is, and I, I give a bit, bit of personal history in the piece that I wrote. Um, you know, I first came across the web in 1994 when I started at university. Um, it was very basic, it was very text-based back then. Uh, the means of accessing it were very limited. There was Mosaic and then eventually Netscape and, and later on other browsers came along too. Uh, but it was this very basic resource, but it was really obvious that it was quite powerful. Uh, and so by the time I graduated in 97, I'd uh, created websites of my own. I was running a website at the time. Uh, and I basically had to build it from scratch. So I learned enough HTML to be able to build a website, and over time I learned more HTML to make it slightly more sophisticated, but that was kind of the way that you had a website. But it meant that anybody who was willing to put in that fairly small amount of investment could publish something. I then went away for two years um, and largely didn't interact with the internet at all during that time, came back again uh, after being a missionary for a couple of years in Asia, uh, got back online, and, and things had moved on considerably. So Blogger had launched in 1999, whole variety of other tools were available then to build websites uh, even without knowing anything about how to code. So you could create a blog on Blogger, you could go to a variety of other places, uh, WordPress and so on followed, followed up in the next few years. So that basically anybody who wanted to could create an online publication and you know, assuming they were any good at it and were able to attract some attention could you know, build the business off the back of that. And a whole variety of, of people did that during that period of time. And that's really been the case until very recently and these tools have become more and more sophisticated. Um, you know, I now run quite a few websites off the back of WordPress, for example. So my company site, the Beyond Devices podcast site, is built on WordPress. Uh, the Beyond Devices blog is built on WordPress. I've recently migrated it to Medium, which is another site that you can use without any coding experience at all. Uh, so it's very easy to do this. It's very democratic in that sense. And yet over the past year or so, we've seen three new platforms emerge that are kind of threatening that in my view. And one is Apple News, one is Facebook Inst Instant Articles, and the third one is AMP, behind which Google is the main proponent, but other companies like Twitter are behind it as well. Um, and what each of these things do is basically create proprietary platforms and formats for content. Um, and in and of itself, that's not the worst thing in the world. They're all using sort of standards like HTML and JavaScript behind the scenes. But what it means now is if you want to publish to these platforms, and especially if you want to publish in a way that's really optimized for those platforms, you do actually, again, need to really know what you're doing as, as, far, as, it's, uh, as far as code is concerned. It's not enough just to write well. You actually have to be able to write not just English but code. Um, and usually some combination of, of HTML and other technologies 
And the problem is, you know, back in 1994, learning HTML was very simple, and, and you could put, a, put together a website very easily, even if you didn't have a lot of history in coding. Uh, things have moved on enormously since then. This is a much more complex proposition now, and ordinary people aren't just going to up and build, uh, you know, a, a back end for an Apple News format uh, publishing engine or anything like that. And so uh, what's happening is you're seeing this divergence again between what uh, mainstream large publishers are allowed to do uh, and what ordinary people are capable of doing on the web. And so this is what I'm referring to as this de-democratization of publishing. Obviously, nobody's forced to use any of these platforms, but Google's now favoring AMP search results. Uh, Facebook is not explicitly preferring instant articles, but they do prefer things like fast loading times, where instant articles have a huge advantage because they're cached by Facebook. Um, and so, and Apple News isn't preferring that content, but Apple is pushing people to use news. It's a way that more and more people on that platform are consuming news. And so even though you're not forced to use any of these things, there are some strong drivers to do so. So that's you know worrying to me as, as somebody who publishes on the web, who would like his stuff to be read in all these places. Uh, we do publish this podcast and the Beyond Devices blog to Apple News, but that's a really tedious process as we've, as we've talked about on previous episodes. Uh, unless you're a big publisher with a content management system and developers that can really work with it in an optimized way, you're stuck with some fairly unoptimized ways of publishing content there. And uh, don't get me started on Facebook and, and AMP because those are even harder to publish to today. Uh, they all require a fair amount of coding experience. And so you're basically, as a smaller publisher, left out of those things. And, and that's quite a worrying thing. It feels like a big backward step to me in all this. Anyway, rant over from my perspective. But um, <laughs> we'd like to broaden out this conversation briefly for the next five minutes or so into kind of the evolution of publishing content on the web and the implications it has, especially since we're currently in an election year in the US for, for the presidential elections. Uh, and, and there's a lot of conversation about this, some of which we've talked about before. But Aaron, I'll stop there and allow you to talk for a bit. Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of those places that I think this is especially interesting is in the current election and how much social media has shaped it. Um, I think it's been easier for people to to narrow down, sadly, their um, uh, the quality and character of their information sources. We, we actually just had a big, long conversation about this in my ethics class yesterday with my students. And... I think, I think the problem is, is people are getting very narrow information diets um, because social media enables them to do that. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to think that maybe the trend is going to push away from that a bit because historically news sources have had to be um, broader in their appeal in order to drive the revenue necessary to keep advertising up to fund what have been pretty expensive endeavors. Um, when, th when the web democratized publishing, it made it so cheap that anybody could do it. But the problem is there's a lot of quality control that kind of went out the window. Um, I wish I remember who tweeted this in my timeline, but somebody said essentially that, you know, one of the big lessons in this election cycle is that we need, we need to be teaching people how to evaluate the quality and reliability of news sources. And, uh, and I definitely think that's true. Um, I wonder if this de-democratization you're talking about, if the trend continues, will have some of that uh, filtering effect that, uh, you know, only the stuff that's actually getting funded can can make it onto people's radar, um, or at least not yes or no going to make it, but, you know, but that the stuff that's well-funded is actually um, being seen more broadly because um, the trend is, is definitely swayed away from traditional publishers and, 
and uh, and the constraints that they impose on themselves are not constraints that you know individual publishers are imposing on themselves. So I don't know. Maybe there's some upside there, but obviously the downside is that is is that you know this ability for us to share our thoughts. Um, you know, as protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, is a really critical part of American democracy. And uh, you know, you might actually have something really perfectly reasonable, important to say, and your audience is now going to shrink because of technological challenges. Right, and that just seems backwards to me. But it is interesting this sort of dichotomy that you're talking about, where on the one hand, some traditional publishing sources are trusted less and seen less because people have entered filter bubbles where they see less of that stuff. And on the other hand, their the power of these big news organizations is actually being reinforced. And, and, you know, they do enormously good work, and this is obviously not to suggest that they don't do that. I mean, we've been talking quite a bit to, to just today about the Washington Post pieces on cobalt and graphite. I mean, for all that I wanted to do the investigative yeah, exactly. work behind that, I certainly couldn't afford to pay for that out of my pocket. Um, and, you know, Jeff Bezos and his investment in the Washington Post has enabled them to really double down on investigative journalism in a way that's been very beneficial and it's an enormous force for good in the world. And, and certainly not, they're not the only publication doing that. The point is that there are other forms of journalism and writing online that uh, are entirely possible for individuals to engage in and yet which will now be harder for people to see. Um, but, you know, this is all part of this evolving picture, some of which we've talked about previously with filter bubbles with the power of Facebook and Google's gatekeepers over what people see and to what extent people are aware of that and so on. There's certainly a lot here to think about. Well, and there's kind of two, I mean, really, there are, there are two things here that are, that are at odds with each other. There's, there's journalism, which we describe, which I described the way you just did, that it's investigative, right? It's about gathering information and making available to the public information that wouldn't be otherwise available, but that's important. And then the other is editorializing. And the democratization of, of publishing, I think, has put editorializing um, not just on par with, but, but ahead of a journalism um, in, in many people's minds, that, that the opinion matters more than the information, right? And, uh, you, you know, if, uh, if, if journalism can, can get more steam and, 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 and gain a little more importance in people's perspectives. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, we'll end there um, and just wrap up this episode with our weekly pick. And, and again, for anybody not familiar, weekly pick is where we take it in turns to recommend something that we've recently enjoyed or been using that we think our listeners might enjoy as well. Um, this time around, I'm going to recommend a movie um, that we saw recently in our family. Uh, we were able to find it in the movie theater still here around here. Um, you may not be able to. You might have to wait a month or so until it comes out on DVD. But it's a, a movie called Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, it's uh, animation. It's clay, claymation. It's a stop motion kind of animation. Very sophisticated. Um, if you've not seen one of these for a while, things have moved on probably quite a bit. Uh, the Verge actually did a great video a while ago on the animation process behind this movie. But um, it's a stop motion. It's a really unique story, hard to describe, so I won't even try. But it's it's quite intense. Wouldn't recommend it for younger kids necessarily, but our, our two oldest really quite enjoyed it. Um, it's just really unusual in that it's an animated movie that's intended mostly for sort of families and kids, and yet that's really very deep in its storytelling. It's not simplistic the way a lot of kids' storytelling is. There's a lot of truth in it with the capital T. So a lot of 
really deep thinking. It's complex stuff. It doesn't take the easy route. Uh, there's some hard stuff in there to, to deal with, to process. It's sad in places. Um, but it's a very thoughtful film and amazingly done from an animation perspective as well. And so really unique, probably the best uh, animated film that I've seen in quite some time uh, and one of the best films I've seen, period, in a long time as well. So Kubo and the Two Strings is the name of the film. As I say, you might still be able to catch it in a movie theater depending on where you are. Uh, but otherwise, I think it comes out on DVD sometime in November. So highly recommended for, from me and my family. Uh, so we'll wrap up the episode there. Thanks for being with us again. Uh, we hope to uh, have you again with us next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye.